This week I, I googled the simple phrase, he changed the world. And as I did, I, I saw all sorts of names. Names like Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Einstein, John Lennon, and the list goes on. But the very first entry was 100 people who changed the world. And so, of course, that caught my interest. And so I clicked on that and I saw this list of 100 people. Now, who do you think was number one on that list? It was Jesus. And I was very happy about that. But the more I got to thinking about it, the more I thought, you know, Jesus doesn't really even merely belong on the list. Jesus is God come in the flesh. There's no one who even compares to the influence Jesus has had in our world. There's an old sermon that was preached in 1926 by a man by the name of James Francis, and his words still sound very relevant today. He said in that sermon, I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind upon the earth as powerfully as has this one solitary life. Think for a moment about the impact of Jesus. His impact was greater 100 years after his death than even when he was on the earth. And his influence was greater still 500 years after his death. And a thousand years after his death, some would argue that, that most of Europe's civilization was based upon his life, was influenced by his life. And 2,000 years after his death, his influence is even greater still. Probably a lot of us in this room watched with horror this past week as we saw that, that cathedral, Notre Dame, go up in flames. And there were a lot of people who gathered, and they, as they watched the flames, and as they watched that, that cathedral fall, the people who were there, they began to spontaneously sing. What were the songs they were singing? They were singing songs that were influenced by Jesus. And today, 2,000 years after, after he has died and been raised on the third day, two and a half billion people worldwide follow Jesus and it seems his influence only continues to grow and his influence continues to grow not because he was merely the greatest man who ever lived not because he was the most incredible teacher not merely because he was someone who spoke the greatest wisdom his his influence continues to grow because we believe like the Roman centurion as the centurion stood and watched Jesus nailed to the cross, he said after he breathed his last, surely he was the Son of God. And that's what we believe. And that's what we celebrate today. And so this morning, before we get to the New Testament, and we're going to get to the New Testament, and we're going to get to those passages that help us to see more clearly the resurrection of Jesus and his impact on our lives, before we get there, I want us to take a short journey into the Old Testament. 
And I want us to walk into Ezekiel chapter 37. So if you have your Bibles, you may want to open to that Old Testament passage. Ezekiel chapter 37. And I want us to see an old story in Ezekiel that will help us, I think, appreciate even more fully the resurrection of Jesus. So Ezekiel chapter 37, if you have a hard time locating that, it's one of the five major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. There it is, Daniel. So it's one of the five major prophets in your Old Testament. And in chapter 37 and beginning in verse 1, the writer, or the, the, pra- the phrase, the Bible opens like this. The hand of the Lord was on me. When was the last time you felt so close to God that it was like his hand was on you? There's something powerful, isn't there, about touch? That's one of the things I love about this congregation. Every Sunday morning as we gather in this place, there's a lot of hugging and there's a lot of handshaking. I especially like our shepherds' meetings. They meet on on Monday evenings. And in those shepherds' meetings, often we'll bring in someone to bless. Maybe it'll be a ministry team, or maybe it'll be an individual. And what we will always do is we'll put them in the very center of the room. And then as elders and ministers, we gather around them. And we lay our hands on them. And we pray. There's something powerful about touch. Well, this morning it says that that Ezekiel... The hand of the Lord was on Ezekiel. That's where he finds himself. And then it goes on to say, by the Spirit of the Lord, that that he brings Ezekiel into a valley. Every time I read this, I wonder, why not a mountain? I mean, as you read through your Bible, you'll find all sorts of wonderful things happen on mountains. For instance, in Exodus chapter 20, it was... It was Moses who goes up onto the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, it was Peter, James, and John. Jesus takes them up onto a mountain. And as they're on that mountain, for just a moment, Jesus pulls back his humanity. And for a moment, they see Jesus in all of his divinity. They see him in all of his glory. It was such a wonderful moment that Peter said, Lord, let's, let's let's build a shelter. Let's stay here a while. So so fantastic but this morning they're not up on a mountain this morning the spirit brings Ezekiel into a valley and valleys can be beautiful too he walks down into this valley when I lived in New Mexico there was this valley called the valley uh, the, the Grande Valley the Grand Valley it was incredible And I remember, sometimes it was not far from Los Alamos, New Mexico, I remember looking into that valley, and it was so green and so lush, and as you looked into that valley, you saw a stream that was going through the middle of the valley. It was acres and acres. It was just one of the most beautiful things I think I'd ever seen in my life. It's a picture of it right there. And yet this morning, when Ezekiel, by that Spirit of the Lord, is taken into a valley, The valley doesn't look like this. The valley is not carpeted with grass and vegetation. This valley is dry, and it's filled with bones. The entire valley is a boneyard. And those bones have been there such a long time, they've been picked by the vultures and bleached by the sun, and now they lay scattered all along the valley floor. And as Ezekiel stands there and and looks at all 
all of these bones. God leads Ezekiel back and forth. Back. Can you imagine being with Ezekiel? You're in this valley and God leads him back and forth. Back and forth. You see, God wants, God wants Ezekiel to really see it. God wants Ezekiel to get it. He looks, looks at all of these bones. And then God asks the question. He says, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? If you'd been asked that question, how would you respond? Can these bones live? As Ezekiel's looking at all of this, these bones in this, this ancient uh, place, I doubt life came to his mind, but words like death and destruction and defeat, more than likely, it came to his mind. But he says, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel doesn't say, as I might say, <clears throat> of course not, Lord. I see nothing around but death and destruction. It's impossible. There's no life there. That's what a pessimist would say. But if you're more optimistic, you might say, of course, Lord. You're all-powerful. You're almighty. These bones can live. The late George Carlin once said, some see a glass as half full, others see the glass as half empty, but I see a glass twice as big as it needs to be. <laughs> we look and we wonder what perspective we would take. Would we be optimistic or pessimistic? But here's what I like about Ezekiel. Ezekiel's honest. Ezekiel looks at this valley and he says, Lord, only you know. And that's really the truth. Lord, only you know. Ezekiel knows if there is a revival that's going to take place, if there's renewal that's going to happen among the people of God, if there's going to be life in the place of death, it's only God who really knows. And so now, now God gives Ezekiel a solution to his dilemma. Can these bones live? Ezekiel says, only you know, Lord. And then God tells Ezekiel to do something that at first, given the setting, might have seemed kind of strange or odd or peculiar. He says in verse 4, here's what I want you to do, Ezekiel. <clears throat> I want you to prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel, I want you to preach to these bones. Now, I'm a preacher and one of the things about me, I love to preach. Uh, I can't sleep in on Sunday mornings. I want to make sure I'm the first one here. I get up early on Sunday mornings, and I come into this space, and I walk into this room, and this room is, is empty. And I'll pray, and I'll ask God to, to bring us people, <clears throat> people whose hearts are open to the gospel, hearts are open to the preaching that will happen later on that day. When I was in high school and the church I was part of asked some of the young men to start preaching, I, I began preaching those, those early, early sermons. I remember the first sermon I ever preached. It was from the, the book of Ephesians. I think I've told you before, man, I'd prepared hard on that sermon. My dad got with me, and we got some old gospel advocate magazines, and we, we put together a sermon. Man, I thought I had about a 35-minute masterpiece, and I stood up with about eight pages of notes one Sunday morning in front of that august crowd of 25 people. And I stood in front of that crowd, and I preached my heart out. Preached everything I knew, and then some. Extended the invitation. 
looked at my watch. Been up there eight minutes. I was tempted to go back up and say a few more things. But those early sermons were pretty, pretty weak. Yet my mother cross-stitched something that still hangs in my office to this day. It was a It was a saying by an old Puritan pastor by the name of Richard Baxter. He lived in the late 1600s. And Baxter once said, I must preach as though I will never preach again as a dying man to dying men. And I love that statement because to me it helps me to understand a sense of urgency that happens as you preach. I've had the privilege of preaching in front of thousands and to preach in front of hundreds and to preach in front of just a a handful. I love preaching. But I'm not certain I would get all that excited about preaching to fossils in a valley. Now, I've come close in a few of the churches where I've preached. I want you to know. But I don't believe I'd get all that fired up about standing in a boneyard and, and, and preaching. But that's what God asks Ezekiel to do. It seems to me we're living in an age that if we're not careful, we can so downplay preaching. And if we do, we do it to our detriment. You know, we say these days, well, people's attention spans aren't as long as they once were. And so maybe maybe the sermons ought to be shortened just a little bit. You've heard the old joke, right, about what a watch means to a preacher? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And others say, well, maybe we ought to soften the preaching just a little bit. But God still says to Ezekiel, I want you to preach to these bones. Had I been there, I might have said, Lord, maybe maybe I should just sing to the bones. Very, you know, singing's powerful, isn't it? I mean, singing can bring life to a, a dead person. I mean, singing's powerful. I might have been tempted to do that. And the Lord said, no, I want you to preach to the bones. I might have been tempted to say, well, let's, let's form a committee and really study this thing and organize this thing. I might have been tempted to do that. The Lord said, no, I want you to preach to the bones. I I may have been tempted to say, well, maybe I should write a paper on it. Maybe I should write a paper on paleontology. And the Lord said, no, I want you to preach to the bones. Ezekiel knew, Ezekiel was told what the people needed was a clear word from God, and that's what we need. If revival and renewal is going to come to this place or come to our lives, we must put ourselves under the authority of the life-giving word. And so here's what occurs. Ezekiel stands there and he opens his Bible and he straightens his notes out and he looks at that crowd, he looks at those, those dead bones and he clears his throat. And with all the courage he could muster, he starts to preach. And as Ezekiel starts preaching, things start happening. It starts to his right and then to his left. Bones are flying past him. Dust is everywhere. There are rattling sounds. There are bones, they're, they're flying together. And Ezekiel, as he's watching all this occur, Ezekiel, he keeps preaching. Bones are starting to come together, and then amazingly, tendons and and flesh are attached to the bones. And so Ezekiel says this in verse 8, I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. It looks an awful lot like there's some life. The 
scattered bones have reassembled themselves into people. But there's a phrase at the end of the verse that indicates just a little hint of sadness. For it says, but there was no breath in them. And if you're familiar with your Bible, that might take you back to the book of Genesis. For in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, when, when God formed humankind out of the dust of the earth, it says that God breathed into him the breath of life. You see, there's no breath in them. And as a result, there's no life in them. Now, I want to remind you of something that we've said this entire series as we have been looking at the Holy Spirit. You see, we can look like the body of Christ. We can have the right organization. We can teach many of the right things. We can have emotional, we can have worship services that are, are well done and, and move people emotionally. We can be organized and polished and it still can be said of us, if we're not careful, there's no breath in them. And when there's no breath of God, there's no life from God. We're nothing but cold, lifeless cadavers. And as a result, there's no energy, there's no movement, there's no life. Nothing happens until God breathes in us. And so fast forward now hundreds of years. It's now after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus is meeting with his disciples in the upper room, and they're timid and afraid and scared, and they don't know what's going to happen next. And Jesus says words to them that might at first have been difficult for them to hear. He says in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, it says he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. When we receive the Spirit of God, we receive the very life of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we need the Spirit of God to do the work of God. And so God says, Ezekiel, here's something else that I want you to do. God says, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy again. This time I want you to prophesy to the wind. Bring the wind in from the four corners and let the wind blow <clears throat> into those who were slain that they might live. And so Ezekiel does that and the wind comes into their bodies and they come to life and they stand up and now suddenly Ezekiel is standing in front of this mighty army filled life and so we may wonder what does all of this mean well we don't have to worry because the lord tells us in verse 11 he said these bones are the people of israel they'd been dragged away from their homes into bondage they felt dead and dry the people said our hope is gone and some of you today come into this place and you feel dead and dry and maybe you wouldn't say it, but you feel that way. It was 12 years ago. It was Good Friday. I'd been asked to meet <clears throat> with a woman who was in her early 40s. 
A good friend of mine had also been asked to meet with her. He was a federal judge. I'd become good friends with this federal judge. We went to the same church. He was very much a leader in our congregation. And the person we, we were asked to meet with, the family asked us to meet with this woman in her early 40s, she'd just gotten out of prison that week. In fact, I believe it was that day. She'd been in prison for well over 20 years. She had family, a part of our church. The family said, would you meet with her? We'd like, like Jim to meet with her as well. And so we did. Now, the backstory is this. She'd just gotten out of prison because 20 years she, ago, she wanted a baby. It's the one thing she wanted in her life. She couldn't have a child. She wasn't married. One day she was in Walmart, and she saw a mother doting over her little baby and the mother turned away for just a moment, and she said, I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why I did this, but I did it. The mother turned away, and she went over to where the baby was and picked up the baby and, and left. And she walked out of Walmart. She got into her car, and she drove away. And she drove out of New Mexico, and she drew, drove into Texas. And so for the next six months, She's nurturing this baby. She's telling other people, look at my baby. She's proud of her baby. She's caring for her baby. You can only imagine the horror of this family whose child was abducted. A few months later, she's caught. She goes to trial. She's guilty. She's been in prison well over 20 years now. She gets out of prison, and she comes into my office with a federal judge. And we're sitting there, and we're talking with her, and we're, we're, just, we're talking about what, she, what happened, and I'm trying to convince her that, that you need to be with us on Sunday, and that, that you're going to be welcomed, and that you're going to be loved, that there's hope for you. And I'll never forget in all my life what this federal judge said to her. He says, it's no accident that we're having this conversation with you on the day the world calls Good Friday. Do you know what happened on this day 2,000 years ago? On this day, there was a Savior who went to a cross, and he was nailed to that cross. And do you know why he did that? He did that for you. He did that for your sin. I know you're embarrassed. And I know you think to yourself, I could never come back to church. I, I could never be around those people. They're, they're so good. They have their lives put together. But I, I don't deserve to be a part of that. He said, yes, you do. Jesus has taken your sins, and he's given you his righteousness. And you need to be with us on Sunday morning celebrating the fact that Jesus died for my sins. And Jesus died for your sins, too. And so it's now Sunday evening. Two disciples are walking along the road, and they're headed to this place called Emmaus. They had heard all sorts of strange things that had transpired in Jerusalem, and suddenly they were joined by a third person along the road. And the third person said to them, so what were you discussing a moment ago? And they said, haven't you heard about what's transpired? Don't you, don't you know about all that's occurred in Jerusalem? And and the third person said, like, like what? Well, haven't you heard about Jesus from Nazareth? He was a powerful prophet. He did all these amazing things. He was handed 
over by the rulers and chief priests. And they nailed him to a cross. They sentenced him to death. And then they said, but we had hoped. They thought all their hope was gone. We had hoped that he would redeem all Israel. But it's been the third day since this took place. And they said some amazing things have happened. We have heard the, the women, they went early Sunday morning, and they, they found that Jesus was not in the tomb. And they were met by some angels, and they said, he's alive. And they went back and told the others, and some men went back to the tomb, and sure enough, he wasn't there. They said he's alive. Everything transpired just as the women had said. The man who was with the two was none other than Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, it tells us that Jesus then began to tell them all the things in the prophets. I wonder if he, I wonder if he talked about Ezekiel and how that all of that referred to himself. And finally, they stopped for a meal. And they still don't know who, whose presence they're in. And they stopped for a meal, and Jesus broke some bread. <clears throat> and he handed it to them. And suddenly, their eyes were opened. They were with none other than the resurrected Jesus. This morning, I want to invite you to walk with me into the valley again. And maybe... In our valley, we don't see bones. Maybe all we need is a good mirror. And maybe if we walk down into the valley, we'll see ourselves as if for the first time. Maybe we'll see ourselves as dusty and barren and parched. I want you to hear the good news this morning. The good news is the bones can live. The good news, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit is a work and alive today, and he will raise your dead life. So may there be a rattling among us. May there be fresh wind and spirit among us. And may we stand as a vast army declaring that the Lord is God. And because he has risen, he has given life to our mortal bodies.